Hi, I'm Sandy Duick, a science communicator at the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute. Today, we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Diana Gentry, who works in the Earth Science Division at NASA Ames Research Center, located in Silicon Valley, California. I know how busy you are because in my Google search on who is Diana Gentry, I found links to so many out of this world projects that you have been or are currently involved in. So maybe perhaps we can, I know you have a lot to tell us today. So let's start with your science journey at the very beginning in your okay. early life, your kid life. Were you interested in science as a kid? I, I would say I came to I came to science relatively late. That was that was more of a late middle school, high school um, passion of mine. And it, I um, particularly have done a fair amount of work at, at the nexus of science and engineering and engineering and technology. Um, I was really only exposed to and started learning about in college. Now, from the time that I was um, very, very young, I was an intensely curious child. Um, I read everything that I could get my hands on. Um, my, my dad describes, uh, he, he says, he said, the most characteristic thing about me from the time that I was an infant was that I hated not understanding things. Mm -hmm. and, and that was immediately apparent. And I, as an adult, I, that makes sense because I still feel that frustration at a, at a deep core <laughs> level. When you see something and you're like, I bet I could understand that. I bet I could. I bet I could. And I don't. Um, so I um, I read a tremendous amount, basically anything that I could get my hands on. I I drove the adults around me to distraction by asking them questions about everything all of the time. But I, I wasn't really exposed to the idea of science as a practice and, until until later. Well, science is definitely curiosity, right? And, uh, you know, from the long list of things that I've read about that you're involved in, you your curiosity is very much alive and well. Um, also, when you were in kid, when you were a kid uh, or early in your life, maybe in middle school or high school, fill in this blank. I was inspired by. Oh, that is a great. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, OK. So this is one of my one of my earliest memories, um, and it's certainly the earliest memory that I can tie to a specific event. I was a, I was barely out of toddlerhood, and so I'm I'm getting ready to go to to nursery school in the morning, and I can see the grownups are all talking, and and something is going on in grown up world, and. Although I, I did not connect the dots until much, much later, this was apparently the day that the Berlin Wall fell. And so I asked my mom, uh, what's everybody talking about? And she's attempting to explain this in, in toddler appropriate language. And the only thing that I got out of this was, so there were two countries and now there's going to be one country. My mother's like, yes, you got it. And I was like, so all the maps are wrong? And my mom was like, I, I guess, I guess so. And so I off I go to nursery school and we had this enormous mural of all the countries in the world on one wall. And the whole day, every time I heard footsteps in the hallway, I thought it was somebody coming by to update the map. And at the end of the day, I kind of looked at the map and I had this realization, you know, there's a lot of maps out there. And that, that was kind of the day I remember becoming aware of knowledge as a thing that changes. Like, even if you read all the books in the world, that's not enough because things change. And and that, I think, 
the the fact that that struck me so strongly, I think, is what made the practice of science resonate so strongly as I got older. Um, and I was I was really motivated by the idea of being useful to people. Mm -hmm. And you watch a lot of children's TV shows and, you know, you have the hero and the funny guy and there's usually the smart one yeah. on the team. And I remember thinking, you know, I feel like anybody could be the hero, but that smart guy, they had to work for it. I want to be I want to be that person. That's harder. And that's who you are today. <laughs> So when when you were in school and you were sort of coming up with these realizations, um, did you have favorite subjects in school? And were those subjects were they were they different from what your strengths are? Because we may love certain subjects, but we're just not that great in them. Um, I so as I said, I I was intensely curious and I I would absorb anything anybody attempted to explain to me. Um, I I thought that I was going to be a writer when I was a little kid because I loved spelling, I loved reading, I loved storytelling. I was absolutely horrible at arithmetic, and I am still to this day. Let this be an inspirational story. If you don't know your times tables, it's okay. And then in middle school, I, I after thinking, I just must really hate math, I hit algebra. And as soon as I didn't have to do arithmetic anymore and I was just pushing symbols around on the page, I was like, I love this. It's a logic puzzle. And I love logic puzzles and I love solving puzzles. And that that, that was really the year that, that my entire interests just just flipped on their head. So you um, you don't fit the normal standards then of what I've been reading about um, young girls sort of getting lost in the end of elementary school and early middle school and often getting lost in math and science. So it's really good to know and to hear your story that actually that didn't happen to you and you sort of opened up and it all made sense then. Yeah, I, everybody's different. Um, yeah. And, you know, it is worth noting that um, it just for middle school, I went to an all girls school mm -hmm. and I, that, that there are ups, there are upsides and downsides to that. Right, right. Um, but it did mean that um, I was, I was unusual for liking math and science as much as I did, not just among the girls, but mm -hmm. above everybody in, in my class. Okay. And, and you know, that, that perspective is a big difference. It allows you to just go, well, you know, okay, that, that's who I am. It takes all right. types to make the world go around in, right. instead of it being a, oh, I, I, I guess I should be more like the other girls. It, it makes it a more universal experience. Okay, so let's move on to your um, your career. Let's start with your interest in, in Venus in your paper and work backwards. So what wonders do you hope to discover on Venus, the possibility for life? So Venus is a really interesting case um, as a planet. So Earth and Venus and Mars, um, we think there's a pretty decent chance they all had fairly clement, wet environments early on in their history. Mars and Venus both lost their water. Mars may have retained a little bit under the surface. Venus's surface is way too hot for stable surface water to exist, but it has, um, Venus has these very dense, persistent clouds 
when you look at Venus through a telescope, you can't see the surface at all. You just see these, you know, miles and miles thick layer of clouds. Mm -hmm. And what water Venus has left is trapped in those clouds. And that's not a type of environment that is anything like what we have on Earth. You know, on Earth, um, clouds are actually full of life. And how I got into studying Venus was through studying the um, aerobiology, you know, how life gets picked up and transported um, through Earth's atmosphere. But our clouds are very short term. You know, they last hours, maybe mm. days at most. And, you know, that's about one microbial lifetime. So you don't really have a, a, a self-sustaining population there. The mm. dynamics on Venus are completely different. So it's really interesting to study, um, is that type of environment something that we should consider a habitat? Okay. And this is very important for, you know, as we start to learn more about exoplanets and, and to discover more of them, which ones should we consider potentially habitable? For how many years have you worked at NASA? Um, I did an internship my senior year of undergraduate. Um, and that, that was my, which really um, sort of fell into my lap in that I had applied to a different internship that fell through and I was complaining about this to somebody um, who pointed me to um, somebody who was looking for an intern at Ames and it was really a very last minute thing. Um, but so I did that internship um, senior year of undergrad. Uh, then I went off to graduate school and about halfway through graduate school, I ended up coming back to NASA Ames Research Center through the Pathways program. Um, which is a program that basically um, will allow students to, to work part-time in a research position while they finish their degree. In your career so far, what job has inspired you the most um, that made you think differently perhaps about the world around you or your own life? So my first internship at NASA was really my first experience with a working research laboratory. And there is there is so much about the practicality of doing research, practicing research on a day to day basis that is is so abstract to you when when you're just in school and you're studying it. And the the biggest perspective shift for me there was that I came out of that actually understanding which skills are important and useful, because there's an enormous amount of. Um, troubleshooting uh, troubleshooting ancient computers that are still hooked up to <laughs> instruments that have been here since the 70s because there's one specific program that operates this instrument and there's no replacement for it. And every team has somebody who has to know how to be able to do that. Um, every team needs somebody who can do statistics. Nobody likes doing statistics. Everybody has to do it. Um, and I, I mentioned when I was talking about kind of what motivates me, I, I really like the feeling of being useful to a team. Yeah. And so seeing that this incredibly diverse group of people with different interests and skill sets coming together to make something happen, I was able to look at that and see, you know, what parts of that Venn diagram are things that I want to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, has there been a aha moment in your job, um, something that perhaps totally unexpected that either happened to you or that you you learned about or you accomplished? 
Oh, many. And that, that is the, I would say that's probably the best part of my job. Uh, a very good piece of mentoring advice that I got while I was an undergrad, and I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do, was there are really two types of people. There are answer finders and there are problem solvers. And answer finders love theory land. You know, they love proofs. They love being able to demonstrate that something is correct or the best or the optimal solution. Um, problem solvers love the practice of research because that moment when the lights go on or the or, or the code compiles or or you don't get an error or you see something other than zero, that's, you know, that's that moment where you get that, ah, it works. Yes. Um, and I... I've, I realized I am very strongly in the second category. Um, and so every, and I do a lot of work with instrumentation. And so every time I, I plug something in and that didn't work and then that didn't work and then that didn't work and then the lights come on, you know, that, that's that, that aha moment that really just keeps driving me forward. I post a lot on social media about the science that NASA is working on, just my own personal posts. Um, often my family, my friends and my neighbors, they ask me, why the heck is NASA spending so much money doing X? Could you perhaps talk to me about the, um, the human benefits of your research? Um, so as I mentioned, I study, um, I, I came into my work on Venus uh, through my work on Earth's aerobiology, and that has an enormous number of immediate practical applications. Um, it's a it's a major channel for how, di for how biodiversity is spread and maintained. Um, it's also very important for understanding allergen and disease tracking and dispersal. It helps us understand what the limits to life are are um can life survive in clouds and for how long and that tells us an enormous amount about uh where we should consider uh potential habitats okay. in the universe um and i've also i've worked on biomaterials and and material science i think is really an underappreciated driver of technology development because so much comes out of well if we just had a material that would do this we could do so many other things um so give me a name like what type of materials um so um you've probably heard of the science fiction idea of a space elevator yeah so so um one of the big hypothetical hurdles to that is um when you've got a tether that that's that is that long its mm -hmm. own weight starts dragging it down and so you need something that has a higher um strength to weight ratio than, than any material we currently mass produced to make something like that possible. And so, um, you know, one thing that I uh, have done work on is structural biomaterials because um, biomaterials have a hierarchical structure to them. So if you take um, iron, for example, a little piece of iron behaves pretty much like a big piece of iron. But if you look at the types of structural materials like bone, tooth, hair, fingernails, etc., um, that life makes, doesn't work that way at all. L little tiny pieces are, have completely different properties, and then they're you know, stacked and plated and combined and, and wound and braided together until you get this complicated, you know, human-sized piece of whatever it is that has these incredibly specialized properties. And they can be they can be light and they can be flexible and they can they can be um, specialized to be extra to be strong exactly where you need them and very very light other places you don't. 
Okay. Um, and we don't really have a set of tools for making materials like mm -hmm. that. And, mm -hmm. and so um, one project that I've worked on was investigating ways to understand in a biological system, um, how are those features controlled? Because if you can understand how they're controlled in nature, then there's a chance that you know you can reproduce that in the lab. Got it. Okay. Very cool. Thank you. One of my uh, favorite science-related quotes is, "Science is a journey to take you someplace you haven't been before." Where do you hope that you're taking us with your work? Oh, okay. So I've got I've got two answers to that, and and you can pick which one you like better. Uh, <laughs> Um, there is, so, um, there is a wonderful plaque, um, that is out by the Hoover Dam, which I randomly discovered on a road trip, uh, with my parents when I was in high, which I was in high school. Um, it's a star, it's a big star map and it basically says, um, and I, I'm, I'm loosely paraphrasing here, but, you know, we put this up to commemorate the construction of this dam. It it covers the sum total of human astronomical knowledge at the time that it was built. And the plaque, the bottom half of the plaque is blank. And it says, when more is known, record it here. And I remember just, you know, that that was just breathtaking for me to see that. You know, there, there is something so fundamental about that allure of the blank space. Absolutely. And, and being able to fill that in. Um. So I, that's my first answer, the, the, the highfalutin abstract answer. Okay. Um, my, my, my second more practical answer, um, and th this is one of the reasons why I'm at NASA, is um, I believe that the future of humanity is, you know, lies beyond the surface of the Earth, which is where we've been for all of human history. And I want to help make that possible. Excellent. I'm excited. We're all excited to be able to follow you on this journey. I also recently read a NASA story about Joanne Morgan. I'm not sure if you've heard of her. She's the she was the first female engineer and the only woman in the launch firing room for the Apollo 11 liftoff to the moon. She is quoted as saying, "I have rocket fuel in my blood." What's in your blood? What drives you? Every morning, I get up knowing that there is a chance that today I will be the first person to know something. That just gave me chills. <laughs> it gives me chills every day. You know, that, wow. that's what that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Morgan was also a champion for young people, encouraging them to stick with the STEM careers, even when they're really hard work, because in the end, the rewards are going to be well worth it. What do you tell students who want to pursue careers in science and maybe want to work at NASA? Um, so I, I've mentored a lot of students at this point, um, some high school students, some undergrads from various because the work that our lab does is very cross-disciplinary, I, I tend to get people who are interested in a lot of different things and trying to figure out what they want to do. Um, and so um, I usually give the advice, try a lot of things. You know, get involved in a couple of different projects. And even when you're just working on one project, look at all of the other people working on that project and look at what they do. You know, and, and even even if you can't try it, you know, ask them about it. So so what do you do and, and why is that important? Yeah. You know, what, what's your piece of the puzzle? Mm -hmm. um, also, don't be afraid 
of things that are hard. Um, I think an awful lot of people, you know, they hit their first university level math class um, or, you know, their first bioinformatics class. And they think, oh, my goodness, I, I'm not getting a very good grade in this. It's really hard. You know, it, maybe this isn't where my talents lie. You know, maybe, maybe I should try something that I'm a better fit for. It's like, do you enjoy it? Because that's really what matters. Um, there are some things that everybody finds hard. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, don't don't uh, don't second guess yourself out of doing something that you love. If you're motivated enough to stick with it, that's what matters. And that's what's going to differentiate you from everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, third thing that nobody likes to hear. Take all the math. Take all the math. Seriously. Um, I um, there is only one math class I have ever taken that I have not ended up using in a professional basis. And this is another thing, um, whether you're in science or in engineering, the more math you can do and the more math you can understand, the more doors that will be open to you. It's great advice to end on. Plus, uh, plus your information about just continuing to pursue, to learn, to understand, ask questions. That's good for all of us at, at all of our ages. So thank you for that. Um, before we move into some personal life questions, uh, one last question in your career area. If you weren't already a scientist, what would you be doing today? Oh, so um, I, I, uh, I earn my bread and butter at the interface between science and engineering and, and being able to, to speak both of those languages and translate back and forth. It's it's a rewarding place to be, although you often fall into the trap of being the one that everybody is mad at because the the engineers are sure that if you could just explain to the scientists what the limits are, they'd stop asking for mm -hmm. unicorns and puppies and the moons on a silver platter. And the, the scientists feel like if you could just explain to the engineers how amazing this work is, you know, we're certain they would find some way to invent an antimatter drive and, and artificial gravity and all of these things that, that we need to have what we want. Um, so um, I would probably be somewhere in that nexus if I wasn't right where I was. I, I almost did my degree in uh, applied mathematics, um, but assume that I, you know, I'm, I'll take your question more generally and say, you know, if I wasn't in science and engineering at all, um, I might be an author. I, I mentioned at the beginning that that was kind of my first love was, was writing and telling stories. Um, and I, I've never lost my appreciation for that. Well, you're telling, you, you're still telling stories today. So <laughs> I, I think you are part author. <laughs> okay, so I have a few more questions for you. So because this is a podcast and there are no visuals of you to share with our audience today, I'm going to make some assumptions about you and I want you to agree or disagree. I wear a white lab coat. Oh, false. I have gone out of my way to avoid wearing white lab coats. I have worn lab coats of many other colors. I have been given a white lab coat, which I tie dyed so that it would no longer be white. <laughs> I sit behind a computer all day. Oh, unfortunately, that is getting more and more true. <laughs> I have no hobbies or outside interests. Science research is my life. Partly true. There are things that I'm lucky enough to be able to do for my job that would probably be hobbies if they weren't my job. Um, I mess around um, with um, 
Raspberry Pis and you know auto, uh, automation for various things and building fun little projects and that would be one of my big hobbies um, if I weren't lucky enough to be able to do that in the lab and get paid for it. Um, I also um, I play a lot of games, tabletop games, role playing games. Um, that's one of my primary social outlets. Um, and I, I read. I still extensively read a lot. I read nonfiction. I read fiction. I, I try to read books that I look at and I think, that doesn't look like a book that I'd like. Every time I think that, I think, and that means I should probably give it a chance. What are you reading right now? Um, the last thing that I read is a history of Sumerian mythology, and I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. I believe we're alone in the universe. False. I, I, so in term, so astrobiologists are the people who study the possibility of life elsewhere. Um, compared to other astrobiologists, I would call myself a life minimalist. I think life is probably pretty rare in the universe, and I think most of what is there is likely to be the equivalent of microbial life. Okay. Um, but I definitely don't believe we're the only planet that on which life has ever managed to arise. Mm -hmm. In my family, I'm best known for, I think I can answer your question. I think you said <laughs> you're best known for your curiosity or are, are there more? <laughs> um, asking questions, the endless questions. Yes, I think, I think that's the answer. <laughs> okay. And what about at work? In my work, I'm best known for, Oh, um, at work, I am known for being the person who knows random things, which is actually a great position to have on yeah. the team. Oh, my goodness. We didn't think this was going to be a problem. Hey, Diana, what should we do? Every time that happens, I'm like, ah, I feel I feel better about myself. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so here's my last question for today. What excites you about coming into work every day? Well, actually, because much of the NASA workforce is still working from home <laughs> due to the pandemic, let me rephrase that question. How has the pandemic affected your work? It's It's been an evolving process. Um, at the beginning, I thought, oh, wonderful, this will be a chance to catch up on all of that data analysis that I haven't done, because, of course, being in the lab and generating new data is is always so much more fun than the analysis. Um, but even I did not have an infinite amount of data that needed analyzing. And so as that started to wind down, um, I've been getting more involved in some machine learning projects that, that can be done from home. Um, Wait, collecting what is, sorry, what is machine learning? Um, so it's a uh, Oh, OK. Well, don't tell the actual machine learning specialists that I said this, but it's basically very, very fancy statistics. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in a particular way that allows you to look at um, a large set of data and say, based on this, um, can we make predictions about what the next thing we might see? Got it. Is? Okay. And so I've been working on a project recently that is um, seeking to apply some of those techniques to biosignature data. And biosignatures is um, something that you would consider indicative of life. So um, 
you know, I've sent a space mission to a planet. I've got a robot. My robot takes a sample of something and it looks at this sample and it says, um, should I be excited about this? You know, does, does this look like life ever might have existed here or does it look like there might be life in it? Um, those features in the data um, we call biosignatures. And so I've been involved in a really cool project recently um, collecting a ton of that data that's publicly available and applying machine learning techniques to it. Okay, okay. And, and that's a very new thing for me. I And it's been, it's been hard because I enjoy the hands-on aspect of it so much. Um, but I'm 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 learning to scratch my curiosity in the in the same way sitting at home in front of the computer. Yeah. So yeah. I'll I'll count that as a good thing. Absolutely. Thanks again so much for taking out of your schedule today time to talk with us. No problem. Anytime.